Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. For instance, I bet you didn't know how easy it is to get out of debt when your country is converting from communism to capitalism. When I was advising Poland in 1989, Poland was becoming a democratic country for the first time in 45 years. I mean, it was exciting. But they were saying to me, we we're going to have a hyperinflation. We have all this debt. We're crushed under the debt. And I told them with a smile on my face, I said, you have no debt problem. You send a postcard to each of the G7 heads of state and tell them, thank you very much. The Soviet era is over and our, our debt is gone. And uh, it happened, not exactly with the postcard, but a couple of years later, the debt was substantially canceled. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. That was the globetrotting economist Jeffrey Sachs, the main man behind Poland's debt reduction, helping us introduce the theme of tonight's show, money, money, money. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a podcast. It's also a game show. It's also live journalism where contestants try to wow us with their IDKs, their I don't knows. To judge these IDKs tonight, we have put together a phenomenal panel. Would you please welcome the filmmaker Brian Koppelman, the social entrepreneur Cheryl Dorsey, and the comedian Hurry Kondabolu. So delighted to have the three of you with us tonight. Let's start with Brian Koppelman. Here's what we know about you so far. We know you've been a poker player and a music business guy that as a college student, you discovered Tracy Chapman. True story? That is a true story. Brian, we know that you wrote the number of screenplays, including those for Rounders and Ocean's 13. We know you host the Moment podcast and most useful for our money, money, money purposes tonight that you co-created the hit Showtime series, Billions. So, Brian Koppelman, is there anything else we don't yet know about you? Uh, For a year, when I turned 29, I decided to dedicate and devote myself to trying to become a tournament ping-pong player. Of course. It went badly. (laughs) You're not grouped by age or size. It's just by the number of points you've accumulated, sort of like in chess. So I show up for the first match... And it's against a 12-year-old girl. <laughs> and um, we shake hands, of course. She kicked your ass, didn't she? She I destroyed me. Going. She yeah. just destroyed yeah, me. Yeah. And that was it. One and done. All right. So nicely, that's what you Nicely done. done. Brian Kotman, very, very happy to have you here tonight. Happy to be here. Uh, next up, Cheryl Dorsey. We know about you that you're a former pediatrician and a White House fellow, and you founded the mobile health clinic Family Van. We know that since 2002, you've run the Echoing Green Foundation, which gives seed money to social entrepreneurs around the world. We know that your parents were both school teachers and that your childhood motto, I love this, was life isn't fair. So Cheryl Dorsey, tell us something we don't know about you. 
essentially I'm in sales. I go out and try to pitch the idea for Echoing Green. But as a kid, I was so shy um, and had such temerity. My mom had to sell my Girl Scout cookies for oh. me. I know. Sorry. How'd, how'd you get over it? I didn't, but I will say, I will say that I'm really passionate about um, the potential of individuals. So when you're passionate about it, it's easy. Excellent. Nice to have you here. Thank you. And our final panelist, Hurry Kondabolu, what we know about you thus far is you're a stand-up comedian, has done a couple albums, a lot of podcasting, including Politically Reactive and The Bugle. We know you're now working on a TV documentary called The Problem with Apu about the Quickie Mart mogul on The Simpsons. <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit more about that, Hurry. Um, it's a movie about how he ruined my life as a child. <laughs> <laughs> being, the, being the only uh, brown character on television for like the first two decades of my life. Uh, and, you know, the fact that he's voiced by a white guy. So it's like... You do not know this? Hank Azaria. Yeah. 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 Hank Azaria. Um, so the movie is like a, both a search for Hank Azaria as well as, <laughs> yeah, apparently uh, he never thought uh, that uh, young Indian American kids would grow up and hunt him down. I don't think he ever imagined that. Gotcha. Hurry, we know you studied politics in undergrad and that you got a master's in human rights from the London School of Economics. <laughs> yeah. I'm very overqualified for my current position. <laughs> All right, hurry, tell us something we don't yet know about you then, please. Uh, I just watched Star Wars for the first time. Like, like the original trilogy. It's weird because I'm so excited about it because I, like, I just finished it two days ago. And, like, I can't go up to, hey, did you guys see the Star Wars? <laughs> all right, hurry. Thanks to all of you for being here tonight. It's now time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Here's how it works. Our very clever contestants will come on stage to deliver their IDKs. You're free, panelists, to ask any questions. And once we've heard all the contestants, you will pick a winner. Now, the IDKs shall be judged on three simple criteria. Number one, does it surprise you? Is it something you truly did not know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time human fact-checker, Mr. A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including The Year of Living Biblically and Drop Dead Healthy. He's also the host of the podcast Twice Removed. A.J., keeping in mind uh, the theme of tonight's show, Money, 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 tell us something we don't know about you. Well, a couple of months ago, I got a $1,000 haircut. Not the one we're looking Not at now. No. Yeah, yeah. You would know. It was for an article for Esquire, and it was on a salon on the Upper East Side. And I actually, I crunched the numbers, and we have about 100,000 hairs on our head. So on a per-hair basis, <laughs> it's only like one penny That's per hair. Not so bad when you put it so, like that, yeah. <laughs> It's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Tonight's theme, you'll remember, is money, money, money. How we make it, spend it, maybe even steal it. Would you please welcome to the stage our first contestant, Maria Konnikova. Hey, Maria, tell us what you do. I am a contributing writer to The New Yorker, and I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Mastermind and The Confidence Game. Excellent, Maria. I'm ready. Our panelists are ready. Brian Koppelman, Cheryl Dorsey, Hurri Kondabolu. What do you know that's worth knowing 
that you think we don't know? All right, so our story begins in the summer of 1890 when a dapper young gentleman named George Parker approaches a young immigrant couple. And he starts a really nice conversation. They just got here and they're really excited to meet him um, because he's an engineer. And he's not just any engineer. He's an engineer who actually has the ownership rights of a really important structure, the Brooklyn Bridge. And so they get to talking and he finally admits that he doesn't really have a lot of business sense and they seem like they really do have a lot of business sense. And before you know it, they have bought the Brooklyn Bridge from him. So my question to you is, how many times did Parker sell the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> Can I ask, when you say he approached a young immigrant couple, mm-hmm. where? is it, He's not going to Ellis Island or right off the boat. Is he finding prosperous people? How does it? Yeah, so he hangs out around the Brooklyn Bridge, where you can see it prominently, and he cases people, mm-hmm. and he looks for people who look prosperous, and he also actually sends scouts sometimes out to arriving ships mm-hmm. so that they can look at the ship manifests, figure mm-hmm. out who has money, and then he can kind of triangulate that way. Was, uh, was he murdered? <laughs> <laughs> he was not murdered. Um, what was the biggest con that he pulled off before this? Like, what's known about how he became this incredible con artist? The Brooklyn Bridge was actually his first con. Mm, starting at the top. I mean, he was, he was quite a businessman, an entrepreneur, so he had a lot of small-time cons. You know, he wasn't necessarily an up-and-up businessman. But at this point, this guy didn't go to college, and he's looking for lucrative opportunities. The bridge was just built. Nobody had thought, hey, why don't we sell this thing? Cheryl, I see you thinking so hard. It's such an interesting um, story. So I'm sort of thinking about, you use the word immigrant. So I'm like, is that essential to the story? And is this about social network? So I might say, well, how many languages did he speak? So George Parker is a good old American boy, only speaks English. Did the people who got conned were they embarrassed to go to the authorities? Did they tell people? Uh, did they try to take him to court? So, what happened? so actually some of the people who got conned ended up in jail themselves for trying to set up tolls on the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so h- how much money did he scam o- on average off of each group? You know, it's a difficult question to answer because he basically figured out how much someone could pay. So um, the most he ever charged was $50,000. And the least he ever charged was about $25. And he loaned people the difference, loaned in quotes. um, And he charged interest, weekly interest on the loan. So I kind of want everybody to just put a number out there since that's what the question was. It was a very specific question. So let's just quickly go. uh, 55. Cheryl, you want to put a number on it? 23. 401. So the number is in the hundreds. He was so meticulous. He had fake papers. He would change his story depending on who he was selling it to. And he was so good at it that oftentimes they would basically ask him to take it off their hands. He didn't even offer to sell it. Um, and that's, that's kind of his brilliance. And so um, we've already established that he was somewhat of an expert at selling landmarks. So there's the Statue of Liberty, which he sold a few times. Um, the largest object he ever sold was the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, he had an office right off of Fifth Avenue and he hired fake staff so he brought people to his office and he sold Grant's tomb and for Grant's tomb he pretended to be Grant's grandson so his 
marks were often jailed and then the police had to explain to them that they don't actually own the bridge um, or they don't actually own the Metropolitan Museum because people actually tried to charge admission at some point. But he was jailed three times. And the third was 1928, where he got a life sentence finally to Sing Sing. And he died a few years into his prison sentence. But um, his influence lives on. So if you guys have ever heard the phrase, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you, that's George Parker. AJ's told me that $50,000 equivalent then, 1890, would be about what? 1.2? Yeah. One, 1.3 million. 1.3 million. Not bad. So current, current dollars. So if he's selling it hundreds, even dozens of times, did he live, uh, uh, did he live large? No, he did live large. And, of course, he, he invested in his scams. I mean, he rented an office on Fifth Avenue. AJ Jacobs, before we finish up with Maria, let's check in with you selling and reselling and reselling the Brooklyn Bridge. What do you say? Yeah, I say uh, it's great business. Uh, <laughs> I found it's actually not the only scam related to the Brooklyn Bridge. In 1886, there was this bartender who made a bet that he could survive jumping off the bridge and landing in the river. So he was like an early David Blaine. And he, he won the bet, but then it came out years later, he had just pushed a mannequin off the bridge. And he was like, it's very sneaky. Good stuff, AJ Jacobs. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much for coming to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Panelists, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Fred Wary? Hi, Fred. Where are you from? What do you do? Uh, Yes, I'm a professor of sociology at Yale University. And I just finished a book with Viviana Zelizer and Nina Bandel called Money Talks. I spend a lot of time thinking about money, culture, and social relationships. You have come to the right place tonight, Fred. Welcome. The floor is yours. What do you have for us? Okay. So how long does a dollar bill stay in circulation? And how does that compare to a $100 bill? Does the lifestyle of the people who would have more hundreds and more ones, does that have any impact on circulation? For example, rich people like to set hundreds on fire regularly. So... (laughs) So I think the ritual setting on fire of the hundred um, happens much less uh, in reality than it does in our imaginations. Mm. What's the process by which they're rotated out of mm. circulation? So what happens is that the, that the depositories, they, they rely on the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve has a cash office that's responsible for our money. They have these nice machines that check the quality very quickly of the bills, and they check to see are they torn or are they too mutilated, dirty, to stay in circulation, because if they stay in circulation, then all of a sudden they don't come out of the ATM machines properly. It's a, it's a mess. Uh, in the New York region alone, uh, the New York Fed's going to burn up about 5 million banknotes a day. So, Fred, you just said something I think we all want to know more about, which is that they burn them about 5 million banknotes a day? A per business day in the New York region. And so there's a facility just outside of the city in uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey. I love that we New Yorkers burn our cash in New Jersey. (laughs) We just burn it. Um, But you actually want to burn it, but money gets pretty dirty. So there are about 3,000 different types of bacteria that live in our paper money, um, according to some researchers uh, at NYU. And uh, the flu virus, when accompanied by mucus, uh, can last for up to 17 days. Thanks on the for paper adding that. Money. You know. uh, 
<laughs> yeah, otherwise it's a much shorter lifespan. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, the, the mucus yeah. really does, it yeah. really helps. And so, so, you know, the paper gets really nasty. And so flu season, I tell everyone, use the electronic payments. The U.S. is a bit of an outlier in how much cash we use relative to credit for a wealthy country. Right? We, we like our cash more than many countries. Are you a proponent of getting as cashless as possible? So getting cashless means that you become more efficient, you cut down on organized crime, you cut down on tax evasion. But the other thing that kind of gets in the way, um, there's this phrase that some colleagues of mine pulled together. They say, you know, money talks, but electronic payments tattle. And so if you look at how couples interact with one another, if all of your transactions are... Leave good, a trace. Goodbye marriage. Oh, it can, it can either end a marriage or it can ruin some really wonderfully romantic moments because you can see the purchase that's just been made at Tiffany's that should have been a surprise. And so there are some reasons why we actually like handling uh, the paper money. Now, Fred, you enticed us by asking to talk about the longevity of the two mm-hmm. bills, the, the $1 mm-hmm. and the 100 You've told us that we burn them mm-hmm. and that they're filthy and that we should be very, very scared of them. Uh, do, you, do any of the panelists want to take a guess at which lasts longer and maybe how long it lasts? My guess would be that the 100 lasts nine times longer. Than wow. That. Cheryl? Do you have any doubt? I mean, what's the most common denomination used in a strip club? Like, what is it? Is it... Oh. What, what? So the strip club's a great example because of this phenomenon that I think is called making it rain. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, Fred, you just heard that, you that, don't, right? That was like um, the most Yale professor moment I've ever seen in my life. That was great. I myself have I've not done the, the, the research to tell you the denomination. I would guess the fives and twenties are probably, unless you're on the, on sort of more of the street level, not very <laughs> upscale places, I think you'll see more singles. Let the record show, though, that when the professor said making it rain, he did do the making it rain hand motion. <laughs> From, like, the videos and stuff. All right, Fred, uh, why don't you tell us how long each bill survives, please? So uh, the difference is really a difference of 5.9 years for the one and seven years for the hundred. But not so long for either. But not so long for either. So, so they have to go out of circulation pretty quickly. Mm. Um, AJ Jacobs, Fred Wary, telling us about dirty, dirty money. Anything more you want to add to that? I actually found there's another kind of dirty money. Apparently, the $10 bill from the Cook Islands in the middle of the Pacific, it's famous for having the most R-rated design in the history of currency. It's an image of a topless woman riding a shark. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Fred Wary, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. And would you please welcome our next contestant, Alana Gerbacher. Nice to see you, Alana. What's your story? What do you do? So I'm a PhD student at Columbia, and I study medieval trade networks. I think that sounds pretty promising for our theme tonight, so tell us something we don't know. Well... From the 5th to the 10th centuries, a mysterious group of traders known as the Radonites pioneered a financial instrument that we still use today. What is it? Would it be money with a lot of mucus on it? Because that sounds like... (laughs) There may have been. Well, my first thought, because it was like the 5th to the 10th century, so like the technology is limited, so maybe guilt... Guilt has been an effective way to spend and to save money throughout time. So actually, 
Honestly, not that far off. Guilt, especially guilt about who your daughters would marry, was a part of it. Was this an easily transferable currency? It was, yes. The whole point was that it eased the liquidity of currency. And was it readily available? It was not. You had to be part of the tribe to get it. Hmm. Uh, was it a current? Uh, Brian's asking as if it is perhaps a currency itself. Is it, it is not a currency itself. So it's not wool or salt. Does it or... come with a moral obligation? Yeah. I think yeah. debt. Uh, it was related to debt. Another D. Was it a dowry? <laughs> um, you could pay a dowry with it. Yeah. All right, Alana. What is this ancient financial instrument of which you speak? So the Radonites pioneered the use of letters of credit. Uh, They were a Jewish trade alliance that spanned the medieval world, connecting Europe to China for approximately 500 years, and they were the sole organization that kept the Silk Road open after the fall of Rome. So even before the rise of the Radonites, communities sometimes used letters of credit when moving large sums of money because they reduced the risk of theft, but they also enforced communal and reputational checks on financial behavior. For example, getting a letter of credit from a good merchant house is like getting an 800 on your credit score today. So the system was radically expanded and became international under the Radonites. Uh, They used merchant house-based letters of credit to trade in silks, brocades, swords, camels, spices, and incense from France to China. The intellectual forerunner of Adam Smith, Dudley North, kind of the father of economics, writes about the critical importance of these international institutions. Without the Radonites to lay the foundation for global trade and credit, capitalism as we know it today wouldn't be the same. So can I ask, Alana, where there's money, there's fraud. So how did you protect against that? Beheadings. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it was very seriously enforced. Um, And you couldn't marry off your daughter. So if um, our house of Dubner didn't pay his debt, um, his daughters and the daughters of everyone related to him wouldn't be able to marry. It was reputationally based money. Interesting. Uh, Citibank actually still uses letters of credit today. So this is, this is really a financial instrument that's worked for a thousand years to move products in dangerous territories. If the letters of credit served as the debt that needed to be collected eventually, what was done to deliver the currency in a safe manner? How was that done? Yeah, so you had sort of a medieval gold standard. So generally, let's say you wrote me out a letter of credit for a million gold dinars. That letter of credit serves to take me to Beijing, where in your uncle's house, I give that letter of credit, and I'm able to buy whatever I want. Now, he himself is not getting gold, but he is able to exchange that for gold when he goes to your merchant house in Paris. Can I ask a lot? I used yeah. to be obsessed with the bubonic plague and sort of these oh. massive you know, pandemics. How did that impact Um, this network. Uh, That's why it ends in the 10th century. And in fact, one of the records that we have is a debt not being paid and that bringing down a Parisian uh, merchant house because the merchant died of the plague. Yeah. Fact checker AJ Jacobs, ancient IOUs of a sort from the Rodinites. What do you say, AJ? Well, one of the things that the Rodinites traded was cinnamon and that sent me down uh, an internet wormhole (laughs) because... That is a crazy spice. Uh, (laughs) I mean, this I love. Cinnamon growers were so secretive, they wouldn't tell anyone where cinnamon came from. And they made up these wild stories about having to battle huge birds who made their nests from cinnamon sticks. 
if our ancestors came to modern day America and saw all these Cinnabons, they'd be like, <laughs> oh my God, this is heaven on earth. <laughs> thank you, AJ, and thank you, Alana Gerbacher, for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. It's time now for a quick break. When we return, more contestants, and we make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you would like to be a contestant on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight are the filmmaker Brian Koppelman, the social entrepreneur Cheryl Dorsey, and the comedian Hurry Kondabolu. Our fact checker is AJ Jacobs, and tonight's theme, you will recall, is money, money, money. To that end, we earlier asked our live audience the following question. What is something you spent way too much money on and don't regret? Explain. So panelists... I'd love each of you to read one of the audience submissions. Hurry, you want to take one? Scuba lessons before a trip to Australia. I will probably never go diving again, but I saw the Great Barrier Reef, which might not be around much longer. Sad face. (laughs) Cheryl? Um, I respond, it says, underwear, because it keeps the family jewels intact. Jokes aside, having good underwear has given me a lot of confidence. All right, Brian Koppelman, what do you have? I'll read this verbatim. My mattress. Bought it two years ago and just finished my last payment this week. Kazaa. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time to get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Alex Barish. Uh, Alex, greetings. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Hi, I'm from Arlington, Texas, and uh, currently I'm a professor in the marketing department at NYU Stern School of Business, where I study human decision-making and consumer experiences. Well, human decision-making and consumer experiences certainly sounds good for our topic tonight, money, money, money. What do you have for us, Alex? So we've all heard the phrase, you get what you pay for. So my question for you guys is, when does paying more for a service actually get you worse results? Haircuts. Interesting question. Is there body work involved? <laughs> Defi- um, what's body work? I mean, I mean, that's what I'm trying to just... Uh, no, what is body work? I, I don't know. What do you think it is? <laughs> I was thinking when you said that plastic surgery, but um, mm. it's not related to that, although it is human-to-human interaction. Hmm. Cheryl, does your mind go to anything... Uh, obviously, you have to decide... When you get proposals, I assume that you have to... It's hard to figure out who's going to use the money well and be productive with it. Exactly. And I would think, you know, if there's a power differential, I mean, I would think about going in to buy a car, someone would take advantage of you, and sort of the more you spent, they would sort of rip you off? Is there something about the power differential involved? It's super interesting. A lot of people in my field study these power dynamics, Um, The thing um, I hear most relevant uh, to the answer in your question is uh, the idea that it might be about motivations or ulterior motives. Well, I was uh, my first thought initially was uh, was drug use, because the more you'd spend, probably you you have you build a tolerance. And so it's not going to be as good the more you spend afterwards or so I'm told. (laughs) (laughs) 
great theories coming here. Alex, you want to put us out of our misery and tell us what you're talking about? Definitely. So there's actually a great deal of research in psychology which suggests that using payments or incentives to motivate certain types of behaviors can actually get you worse results. Uh, So let's take charitable fundraising. As an example, uh, in a set of studies that I did for my research, we recruited about 250 people to make a pitch on videotape to support a charity or cause of their choosing. And their task was to persuade uh, potential donors to give money to their cause. Uh, But here's the thing. Half of those uh, people made their charity pitch without any further instructions, while the other half were actually told that they would be paid one dollar for every dollar that they uh, raised for their cause. That is, they were incentivized to do a better job on their task. Uh, The more money that somebody gave from watching their video, the more money they personally would be paid. So what happens when we show those videos now to a separate uh, group of about 1,500 target donors? Uh, Well, they actually gave less money to the incentivized persuaders than to the non-incentivized persuaders. Can I ask you a question, Alex? There's some data that shows that, in fact, you get more money fundraising if you tell the story of one person versus a larger group, which seems counterintuitive. Is that related to your research? It's definitely related. So that's the identifiable victim effect. And um, we're oftentimes motivated by uh, charity appeals that make us feel something people who want to receive money, you care a lot about their sincerity. And so um, why did the incentives backfire? Uh, It turns out that the um, incentives actually turned that altruistic act into an economic one. While persuaders who did the charity pitch for free were able to feel good about helping, receiving an incentive or a personal bonus payment may have caused them to question the kind of purity of their own motives, and that uh, resulted in them actually giving off subtle verbal and nonverbal cues uh, that made them seem less sincere to the target donors. So people who are really effective professional fundraisers mm-hmm. who, who get a percentage of what they raise... What's the narrative that works for them to tell themselves? What's really important is that the person who is making the charity pitch is intrinsically motivated, that they feel some passion or closeness about the cause. Alex, you mentioned that the problem is that the people in your experiment who were being incentivized financially would give off cues, and I'm just trying to understand the mechanism. Then the people who are watching the video interpret that cue in a way to say, I'm not going to give, right? Or I'm not going to give as much. What's their tell that people are picking up on? Right. We do think that it's probably related to uh, both nonverbal and verbal cues. So nonverbal things might be uh, something like eye contact or facial expressions. Uh, And verbal cues include things like uh, pitch or intonation or tone of your voice. Uh, All of these things kind of come together and make you guys decide whether you think I'm being sincere or authentic. So interesting, Alex. AJ Jacobs, Alex is telling us about a case in which more money means less money. Anything more to say about that? I did find another tidbit about the psychology of not paying people. Turns out that sometimes paying people with candy works better than paying people with money, and not just for kids, for everyone. Uh, (laughs) Daniel Ariely, the psychologist, he found that people were more likely to do a menial task if they're paid with a few jelly beans than if they're paid with a very low amount of money. And when I read that, Stephen, it totally made sense why you've been paying me four Laffy Taffies. (laughs) You're welcome. Alex, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Know. (laughs) 
Would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Lisa Servan. Hey, Lisa, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Very well, thank you. What do you do? I am a professor of city planning at the University of Pennsylvania. You're a final contestant member, so make it good. Okay. What do an Ethiopian-American cab driver, a tamale vendor in the South Bronx, and an administrator at a community college have in common? They hate gentrification. Good try. What percentage of community college employees are immigrants? Pretty high. Does it have to do with their uh, point of view on debt? To some extent, yes. Does it have to do with um, whether most of their checks are cashed or deposited in a savings account? It does. Cheryl, do you, do you think you know what the answer is? I think I do. I'm, I'm curious to give you a shot, yeah. Related to remittances, which is a huge economic... Um. Transfer for immigrants. They're related to remittances, but it's not the answer. Okay. Remittances means guess, sending though. money back yes, somewhere. Where yeah. people send money usually to the place that they came from. Yeah. Does it have to do with the kind of banking they do or don't do? It does. Is it that they don't use banks? Um, some of the people who I'm talking about do use banks and some don't. So it's not a zero one kind of thing. Is it that they don't have credit cards? Nope. Well, do you want to tell us? Because I think we're about out of guesses. <laughs> yeah, right. They all participate in Roscas. Uh, oh, Rosca... Roscas. No, I've never heard of that. What's a, what's a... <laughs> Rosca is an Wait. acronym. It stands for Rotating Savings and Credit Association. Oh. And um, they're very common in immigrant communities because they're one of the oldest and most widespread form of savings worldwide popular in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And the way it works is that groups of people, let's say 10 of us, get together, and maybe, Stephen, you're the banker. We agree to put in a certain amount of money every week, let's say $100, and there are 10 of us. And every week, a different person gets the pot, right? So if you're first in line, it operates as a kind of short-term loan, and you effectively pay that loan back for the next nine weeks. If you're at the end of the line, it's a kind of forced savings. So you would get that $1,000 after putting in your $100 every week for 10 weeks. They're a little bit like the Christmas clubs and vacation clubs that were popular here in the 60s and 70s and no longer really exist. Uh, People really like them because, well, if you're getting the loan, it's a free loan. Um, And if you're saving, a lot of people have found that they save a lot more money uh, more easily than if they were just promising themselves, I'm going to put that $100 in the bank, right? And it also protects the money from family and friends. So if I get a windfall and people know that I have that money in my bank account, they may ask me for it or ask me for a loan. And this way, it's safe, right? So they have 200 different names worldwide, and uh, some of them are for very specific purpose. So Ethiopian cab drivers who drive at Logan Airport in Boston save in something called idirs, roscas for saving for their funerals. Egyptians save in something called a gamaya, and they're usually saving for big life events like births and marriages. And they also find that in many of these cases, they create a kind of social solidarity as well as a savings and lending vehicle. This is very cool. I mean, um it reminds me a little bit of sort of microfinance and microcredit yes. work in uh, emerging markets, which is mostly women. Is yes. it mostly men here? It's both, it's actually. Both. Okay. Many of them are single kind of 
group, like all Dominicans or all Mexicans, but that's changing a lot. And I've actually, in my own research, found a lot of them in workplaces, hence the um, community college where people are saving and it could be a janitor and an administrator saving in the same group. Have you written like a book about this yet? Or I just had a book come out. It's called The Unbanking of America, How the New Middle Class Survives. Are they primarily doing this instead of engaging with a bank where they might it's to get a small loan? super interesting. In the book, I write about a woman who runs two of these in the South Bronx. She has two bank accounts, and so sometimes people will drop their contribution off at her apartment, and sometimes they actually deposit it right into her account. So mm. this mainstream bank is kind of enabling the informal savings, which is super interesting. Wow. So interesting. A.J. Jacobs, Lisa Servan been telling us about Rosca's Rotating Savings and Credit Associations. Do you find anything interesting? It interested me. Uh, <laughs> it's a variation on this called the Tontine. And the way it works is everybody pays a fee into the kitty, and the last person living, the last not to die, gets to keep the money. So it does have some downsides. Yeah. <laughs> But it was very popular for a couple of centuries ago, especially. And Alexander Hamilton, the guy in the musical, he, <laughs> he proposed a nationwide tontine <laughs> to pay off the debt for the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and and they took him right up on that, or they did not? Congress did not go for it. Uh, <laughs> but it was like the most morbid lottery ever. It's like the government gets a little bit, and everyone else pays. Excellent. Lisa Servan, thank you so much for telling us something we don't know about Roscas. And that, I am sad to say, concludes our round of audience contestants. Great stuff tonight. Let's give them all one more round of applause, please. It is time now for the panelists to vote. They will use a ranked voting system to pick their favorites. And the contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner. He or she will join us back on stage later. So who will it be? Maria Konnikova with How to Sell the Brooklyn Bridge Over and Over Again. Fred Wary with Dirty, Dirty Cash. Alana Gerbacher with Rodinite Letters of Credit or Ancient IOUs. Alex Barish with her work on charitable donations when more money means less money. Or Lisa Servan and her IDK about the unbanked using Roscas that we're calling No Bank You. While the votes are being cast, let me say this. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know or if you want to come see the show taped live in New York or one of the many other cities we're starting to visit, just go to tmsidk.com. On social media, we are at tmsidk underscore show. Okay, the panelist votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants who I thought were just great tonight. Sadly, there can be only one winner. And tonight, that winner is Lisa Servan with her IDK about Roscas. No, thank you. Congratulations. Bravo. Now, Lisa, to mark your accomplishment, we'd like to present you with this Certificate of Impressive Knowledge, which is suitable for framing. You'll also join us back on stage later to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Now, which panelist will you face? That's what we are about to determine. So, panelists, it's time now for each of you 
to tell us something we don't know about tonight's theme, money, money, money. And this is what we call the reference round, which means we are going to give each of you a volume of the Journal of Financial Economics, and we'll give you a minute or two to page through it. So Brian, Cheryl, and Hurry, have fun reading, and get ready to tell us something we don't know. While they're working, we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll hear what they came up with. Our live audience will pick a winner, and that winner goes head-to-head with our audience winner in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Welcome back. It is time for our panelists, Brian Koppelman, Cheryl Dorsey, and Hurry Kondabolu, to tell us something we don't know about money based on their having spent a couple minutes with the Journal of Financial Economics. Let's hear first from Brian Koppelman. What'd you find? Well, I I found that I can't read this book. (laughs) Because what it made me think about is financial illiteracy. And I'm someone who actually reads a lot about this stuff. But when it comes down to it, I'm looking at these numbers. uh, I'm not great. And I was interested in uh, what percentage of Americans would define themselves as financially illiterate. And I happen to be in possession of that number. Really? 59%. 59% admit to financial 59% illiteracy. 59% of Americans. I'm certain it's much higher, actually. But when you think about it, we are completely at the mercy of this industry. And if, if more people could admit what they don't know and could find... Uh, easily accessible resources, uh, we'd have, a, I think, a much better uh, chance to fix a lot of what's... That's a great uh, point. Broke. What would you consider a kind of benchmark of financial illiteracy or literacy? What I immediately thought of was the Fed, and I immediately thought of the interest rate. Because, right, what the Fed adjusts is the prime lending rate, but nobody gets the prime lending rate. But people and markets swing wildly based on that figure moving by a quarter of a percentage point. So by that benchmark, I think probably... of us are financially illiterate. Brian, it's a great insight. Cheryl Dorsey, what did you find in your journal there? I um, flipped to this article that has a very cool title called The Cost of Friendship. And I thought initially it was going to be about maybe quantifying social capital or something like that, but not quite. So venture capitalists who share the same ethnic, educational, or career background are more likely to syndicate with each other. This homophily reduces the probability of investment success and the detrimental effect is most prominent for early-stage investments. They suggest that this birds-of-a-feather-flock-together mentality can be very costly. So I thought that was really cool because, in a sense, the work I do is akin to venture capital, but it's in the social sector, so angel investing for social enterprises. 80% of all women-founded businesses are founded by black or Latina women. Mm. However they receive collectively only 0.2% of venture investment. Really interesting. Yeah. Nicely done, Cheryl Dorsey. Hurry Kondabolu, your turn to tell us something we don't know about money drawn from your leisurely reading of the Journal of Financial Economics. I found an article about how marital events affect the performance of hedge fund managers. <laughs> and marital events uh, are defined as like divorces... Or getting married. So, like, (laughs) anniversaries are out. Nice day with the kids is out. Having sex is out. That's a joke. So, 
We find that marriages and divorces are associated with significantly lower fund alpha during the six-month period surrounding the two-year period after the event. (laughs) Business managers who manage multiple funds and who are not part of a team are more affected by marital transitions. Inattentive managers place fewer active bets relative to their style peers, load more on index uh, index stocks, exhibit higher R's squareds with respect to systemic factors and are more prone to the disposition effect. Now, based on what I understood, (laughs) sounds like it's best not to get married, and if you're in a marriage, don't get out of it. Just drag you and your partner through a unfulfilling union, and you'll make more money. I did not know that. Thank you for sharing, Harry. Well, it is time now for our live audience to vote for the best IDK out of the three from the panelists you just heard. And the winner will go on to the final round to face the audience contestant winner. So audience, I'd like you to take out your phones right now and follow the texting instructions on the screen. All right, the live voting has closed. The ballots have been tallied. And our panelist winner tonight is very, very, very close. Everyone did extremely well in the voting, but one of you did a little bit more extremely. And that was with 40.6% about marriage and money, Hurry Kondabolu. Congratulations. Great job. So, Hurry, you will now play the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, competing against tonight's audience winner, Lisa Servan. Lisa, come on back on stage, please. Okay, here's how our final round works. In a moment, we will reveal a topic related to tonight's theme, money, money, money. The two of you will then have to come up with an IDK on the spot using no research materials whatsoever other than your own awesome brains on the very slight chance that one of you tries to fabricate an answer. Remember that we've got our fact checker, AJ Jacobs, right here. What then is our final topic? Well, we all know that money is one of the big reasons that we all work. With that in mind, our final round topic is first jobs. We'll give you a minute to come up with something good. While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you to visit TMSIDK.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or even better to be a contestant. Or if you'd like to suggest a theme for a future episode or recommend a panelist, give us a shout on Facebook or Twitter. We go by TMSIDK underscore show. Okay. Hurry, and Lisa, it's time. You will tell us something we don't know about first jobs. Hurry, you first. What do you got? Um, I, I think the designated hitter and the game of uh, baseball is, is an interesting job to have. It was started in the 19, I believe in 1973, the Yankees had a Bloomberg, Ron Bloomberg, and I find it interesting because the National League does not have a designated hitter. I'm trying to find an example or, or a punchline, um, as we call it in the industry, but I don't have one. <laughs> It wasn't something that was used regularly at first because, oh, it'll, it'll never last. The idea of an extra hitter without someone who can't hit the pitcher, like, hitting, and it actually ends up, it created two separate uh, sets of rules in Major League Baseball. Nicely done, Harry. Uh, Lisa Servan, what'd you come up with about first jobs? Uh, well, I grew up in a small town in suburban New Jersey, and my sisters and I, I think, would come up against almost anybody with the most creative and interesting first jobs. 
So um, my oldest sister, Leslie, had a job uh, that was called Fluff Monkey, and she was in charge of making sure that the right material went into maxi pads at a local factory. My youngest sister, Jody, had to get up on weekends at 2 in the morning because she was in charge of filling jelly donuts at the local bakery. <laughs> and I worked at a local motel um, breakfast restaurant where my best tipper was um, the head of the local mafia who owned all of the garbage trucks in town. Uh, AJ, uh, I know you've only had a a minute. Um, I'm assuming you can tell us whether the designated hitter was indeed uh, begun in about 1973? Uh, Indeed, indeed. Although there were people proposing it as early as 1906. 1906, really? I know. And uh, did you find on the internet that uh, Lisa's sister was a fluff monkey stuffing... uh, (laughs) I, I typed check. in fluffer, and I got all sorts of things. <laughs> uh, but I did find a, an excellent uh, mental floss article about first jobs of famous people. Rod Stewart was apparently a grave digger. Ozzy Osbourne, this was interesting, worked at a slaughterhouse. It is time for our live audience to pick a winner. So you're just going to make as much noise as you can for what you think is the better IDK. Remember the criteria. Was this something you did not know? Was it worth knowing, and was it true, or at least true-ish? Let's first hear what you thought of Hari Kondabolu's entry, the beginning of the designated hitter. <laughs> Extremely respectable. And Lisa Servan and her family's strange series of first jobs. I believe, Lisa, you have won this evening. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Now, what prize could we possibly give you to measure up to your performance tonight? Well, originally we had a, a bag, paper bag stuffed with cash, but apparently it was uh, sent off to an incinerator in New Jersey. <laughs> so we got you the next best thing. You remember back at the top of the show when the economist Jeffrey Sachs told us how Poland dealt with its debts once it left the Soviet Union? You send a postcard to each of the G7 heads of state and tell them, thank you very much, the Soviet era is over and our our debt is gone. Well, Lisa, we scoured the globe and we found just for you a set of nine beautiful Soviet-era Polish postcards, each depicting a folk costume from a different (laughs) Polish village. You are welcome very, very much. And that's our show tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know about money, money, money. Thanks so much to tonight's awesome panelists, Brian Koppelman, Cheryl Dorsey, and Hurry Kondabolu. Thanks to our brilliant contestants, and thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Next week on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, our special Easter Passover edition. It's a religious-themed episode called Oh My God. Our panelists, John Fugelsang, Aman Ali, and Tammy Sager. I want to be in the Momser dating class. Those sound like fun people. That's like the damaged kind of person I want to date. It's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Andrew Dunn, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. 
Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>